Gospel of John series. We're uh, getting closer and closer to the end. Another five or six messages and we're going to be right at the end of the Gospel of John. Today, this is our uh, 38th week in this Gospel and uh, we've come to chapter 18. And we're calling today's message, Truth on Trial. Truth on Trial. Well, have you ever made a mistake? No, not me, right? I think we could all say mistakes are easily made. Uh, And one of the things we experience sometimes when we make a mistake is that it's often too late to rectify the situation by the time somebody notices. That was the case with Spain's supposedly state-of-the-art submarine, the S-81, Isaac Peral. The submarine was commissioned in 2013 as one of four new submarines for the Spanish Navy. But there was just one problem with its very modern design. Once it was submerged, the S-81, Isaac Peral, it was discovered, may never be able to resurface again. That's a problem for a submarine. And all this is because of an astonishingly unnoticed flaw in its design, which meant that the ship was around 75 to 100 tons overweight. All right, you step on the scale and you think, ah, a few pounds overweight here, what's going on here? 75 to 100 tons overweight, which means Spain essentially invested in a submarine which could only move in one direction, straight down to the bottom. And the mistake was said to be made by the result of a pesky decimal point placed in the wrong place during calculations. And it's a single dot which would end up costing the Spanish Navy an extra, just $100 million extra to repair the hull, which had to be extended so that it could regain its balance. Now, considering the $680 million that had already been invested in that single ship, it was hardly a mistake which could just be swept under the rug. In fact, it took an additional seven years to make the adjustments and repair that submarine, and it finally joined the Spanish fleet in May of 2021, and then just a few months ago, in March of 2023, it completed its sea trials and began to serve full-time. Mistakes are easily made, aren't they? And sometimes, though, they have costly consequences. In our text today, from the Gospel of John, we're going to look at a number of mistakes or costly errors that were made by various people in the handling of the truth of Jesus. Now, you remember that we saw back in chapter 14 that Jesus said of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty exclusive statement that that Jesus makes. How a person receives this statement makes all the difference in the world. How we handle the truth of Jesus changes everything. And being off by just a fraction 
a decimal point can have devastating eternal results. So we're entering into our text from John today at the point where Jesus has just finished praying in chapter 17. That prayer, which we looked at in the past two weeks, uh, is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture. Now we come to chapter 18 and we begin to examine the events immediately following that time of prayer and preceding the, the death of the Lord, which is coming. Things start off rather slowly, but then they begin to pick up steam, if you will, flowing very quickly. In this text, truth is on trial. And when we say truth, we're talking about Jesus because Jesus is the truth. So truth is on trial, Jesus is on trial, and we're gonna examine three wrong ways that people choose to handle the truth. I think you ever remember that, that old... Uh, that statement, you can't handle the truth. That's from some movie, isn't it? You can't handle the truth. Well, we can handle the truth. The truth is Jesus, and he wants us to handle the truth, but he wants us to handle it accurately. Jesus is the truth. And he wants us to make sure that we don't put the decimal point in the wrong place. Because guess what? That can sink our ship of faith. So let's read this first section of the scripture together. Uh, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. The words of scripture on the screen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Amen. The words of God. Well, I want to set the stage here just a little bit so that we're familiar with what's happening here. Jesus and his disciples uh, are going to leave the relative safety of their meeting place in the upper room of a friend's house in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a, a large walled city. And there in that city, you remember that Jesus took the disciples to that upper room. We've looked at that over the last several chapters where Jesus has spent time with them, instituting the communion, the Lord's Supper, washing their feet, teaching them his final words of instruction. And so now it's time for them to leave the safety of that upper room. Now his opponents, his detractors, the Pharisees, along with the Jewish religious leaders are seeking to capture him. But they fear 
the reaction of the crowds. You remember that just a few days before when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, there were vast crowds crying out, cheering him, Hosanna, God save us. So Jesus is popular. The religious leaders are fearful of what the crowds might do to them if they are to capture Jesus publicly. So Jesus purposely chooses to leave behind the safety and the security of the upper room, of the crowds, of the walled city, and he leads his guys on a walk. They leave out through one of the gates of the city. They drop down into the Kidron Valley. They cross the, the brook there, and then they head up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and they enter into a garden area, an olive grove, a place that they've been many times before. And it's here in the Garden of Gethsemane, that olive grove, that we see the first negative or wrong reaction to the truth. And that reaction is betrayal. We know the story. The first negative way to handle the truth is by betrayal. Betrayal is a deep and a painful relational act. I read this account in his best-selling book uh, entitled The Telling Room. A, a gentleman by the name of Michael Paternity uh, shares a true story that he heard while he was visiting his father's ancestral village in Sicily. And while he was there, he noticed that every day while he was in the village, he saw a very old woman stooped over, walking with her cane, struggling up a steep road to get to the local cemetery. And it was said that at her tortoise pace, as she barely moved along, the walk from her home in that little village to the cemetery and back took her about six hours every day. And it's a journey that she made day after day. And what, what grief might inspire this difficult daily walk? Was she driven perhaps by the, the sorrow over a, maybe a departed child or a deceased husband, the love of her life? No. The local people told Mr. Paternity that she was driven by what they called astio, a bitter hatred. A bitter hatred. Her arch enemy, a longtime friend who had betrayed her years before, was buried in that cemetery. And so rain or shine, this old woman walked up the hill every day to her enemy's gravesite just to spit on it one more time. Betrayal. Betrayal can be ugly. Now, as we think about the betrayal here of Judas, we, we don't receive from Scripture all the details of why Jesus betrayed the Lord. We certainly have some clues and some ideas. We know, Scripture tells us, that he was a thief, that he was driven by greed, that he stole from his closest friends, including the Lord. The Apostle Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of of evils. And so throughout the annals of history, there have been many betrayals based on money, wealth, business, those kinds of things. Uh, perhaps Judas is angered 
to discover that after three plus years of following Jesus, that Jesus is not the type of Messiah that Judas had hoped for. Judas was looking for a, a political revolutionary, somebody who would help the people overthrow the hated Romans, but that's not what Jesus was about at all. In verse three, John tells us that Judas comes and he comes bringing a detachment of soldiers. By the way, that word detachment, that, that means a, a group that, that is measured uh, anywhere from 200 to 500. This is not a small band, all right? This is a large armed group of people, officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. This large group is carrying torches, lanterns, weapons. They're spoiling for a fight. They're ready to take Jesus down at any cost. And in the still of the night, in the darkness on that mountainside, Jesus and his guys, it would be easy for them to see and to hear such a large contingent coming. There were no streetlights, no traffic noise. They would have known that the group was coming. Out of the city, in the dark, in the trees, they've got a good head start. Jesus could easily be able to slip away from this group. So there's only really one reason why Judas finds Jesus in that garden on that night, and it's because Jesus is allowing himself to be found. So what can we learn from this? Jesus stepped into the process of betrayal deliberately and yet remaining in complete control. You know, Jesus didn't begrudge the fact that he was headed to the cross. He chose that path knowing that this was the way for his spiritual brothers and sisters to come into the eternal family of God. Jesus did this. He stepped into betrayal that night. He did it because he knows us. He knows how we think. He knows the truths that we hide. He knows the, the masks that we put on and the pretend answers that we give. He knows how our minds think and the difference between what we say and what we do, the shortcomings of your life, the sin that I allow to determine my actions, the failings that we all desperately try to cover up. Jesus knows it all. He is the truth, and we're not. Jesus knows, and still, Jesus goes. Jesus remains in complete control, which brings us then to the confrontation, the detachment of soldiers, a group of angry, bitter opponents, and a disciple turned betrayer. A lot of people for a small task. The arresting group is in a very commanding position, or so it looks. Who do you seek? Jesus asks. Jesus of Nazareth. Notice that they don't say Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King of the Jews. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That's the name his enemies use. 
trying to remind him of the fact that he is really a nobody from some backwater town in Galilee, a pretender who's been stirring up trouble, and now it's time for him to pay. He's an inconvenience who's going to be, uh, going now to be put out of the way. Now, once and for all, they're ready to do it. Or so everyone thinks. But those are misconceptions. Those are lies, and Jesus is the truth. Their lack of knowledge about Jesus leads them to misunderstand his true identity. And friends, similarly, people today form opinions about Jesus, sometimes based on the negative views of others or on misconceptions or false understandings without truly knowing who he is. He is the truth. And the truth and the lies of this world cannot coexist in a healthy way. You see, friends, betrayal usually flows out of not getting our way. It flows from assuming that we know the thoughts and the motives of others. It flows from a a fleshly need to, to blame someone else for our problems, our sinful condition, the consequences we're experiencing. And this is true in the relationships of this life and it's true of our relationship with God. When we seek the Lord only on our terms, when we fashion his truth to meet our personal desires, our preferences, when we blame him for all of our problems, friends, we are in essence betraying Jesus. We are creating a false picture of who he is and falsehoods and lies cannot coexist with the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And friends, may we walk the way of Jesus. Not our way, but his way. May we live the life that Jesus has for us. Not our life, but his life. You know, there's that old song by Jill, Billy Joel. This, this is my life. Go ahead. My life. You're wrong, Billy. Our life belongs to God. It's a gift from him. And when we return it to him, when we step into a eternal relationship with him, we experience the truth of what that means. It's his life. Friends, truth is on trial every day of our lives. May we remain aligned with the truth of Jesus. Not our truth, but his truth. For to live any other way is to choose betrayal. Well, next in the text, we're going to see two more negative ways of handling the truth. Then they're going to be illustrated by trials and denials. Trials and denials. In the passage we're about to read, John does something that's a a bit interesting that I want us to notice. He goes from talking about the trial of Jesus to Peter's denial, and then he switches back to the trial of Jesus. And I think perhaps that there is a, a purpose that John has in breaking the continuity of the events up here. Remember, we learned when we first began this overview of John, that the reason John wrote the book, 
Well, he gave it in the very last verse, John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, Jesus wants to show the glory of God in Christ so that we might believe. That's why John writes this gospel, so that we might believe. So we see Jesus going from one trial to the next. But right in the middle of all of it, John wants us to see the why. Why does Jesus willingly go through these trials? It was for the sinfulness of mankind the brokenness of people. And the denials of Peter, I think, illustrate that so realistically for us. Jesus does it for us. So let's begin first with the trial. Let's join together in reading again, John 18, 12 through 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officer of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Hmm. Caiaphas had a little different idea of what one man dying for the people might mean than Jesus did. Well, the night of his arrest, Jesus ends up as I said, going through a series of religious trials, and then later we'll look at a series of civil trials. Now to understand what's taking place here, it's necessary to know a bit about the political scene in Jesus' day. Now the pagan Roman Empire is in control. They are an occupying military force in Israel. But Rome has no interest in the Jewish religion. Rome has got plenty of religion of its own. You're familiar with the Greek and the Roman gods. They had a god for everything. They're not interested in these silly Jews in Israel that have just one god. They've got so many gods, it's got to be better, right? More is always better. Not so. Not so. So the Romans are in control. Now, they allow the Jewish religious leaders to keep some control of the religious scene in Israel. But they are still maintaining control through these religious leaders who become kind of like puppets for the Romans. And especially the important position of high priest, which is carefully designed by God in the Old Testament for the Hebrew religion. But the Romans now have control of that position, and it becomes a position that goes to the highest bidder. Whoever kicks back the most funds to the local Roman governor gets to be high priest, or at least a pseudo-high priest behind the scenes. And that's who this gentleman Annas is, who Jesus goes to first. Now, the Jewish religious leaders were supposed to take care of religious matters, they had no power in civil matters like putting someone to death. Only Rome could do that. And so for the, in order for these Jewish religious leaders to get rid of Jesus, to have him taken care of, they've got to play along with the Romans. They've got to accuse Jesus of some sort of civil 
disobedience, breaking Roman law in some way. And so that's what they're plotting to do. Now, according to God's law, there is only one high priest, and they were to serve for life. But things were such a mess by the time we get to the first century, the time of Jesus, that God's law is not being followed by the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders. The first uh, person that Jesus is taken to after his arrest was Mr. Annas. And there was a reason for that. Annas hated Jesus. He hated him. Annas was powerful. He was rich. That's how he bought the control of the high priest's office. Now, the high priest had the job of controlling the sacrificial system. All of the sacrifices that are brought into the temple, remember this is Passover season. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Jews are flooding into the city of Jerusalem from all over. And they're bringing their animals, their sacrifices to do God's bidding through the sacrificial system. Now, the rules, according to the Old Testament, required that their sacrifices be without spot or blemish. Of course, Annas and his minions would regularly find flaws with just about every animal that's brought to the temple. And so the people have a problem, which Annas conveniently solved. He sets up a marketplace right there in the worship courts of the temple. And he allows vendors to come in and to bring their animals, to bring their tables to change the various coinage. And he controls all of that and he gets a kickback from all of that. The people will have to buy from one of those approved merchants set up in the temple. And so the common man, the common person who wanted to follow the law of God who wanted to obey God and just simply do the next right thing. They bring their sacrifice and they find themselves in a predicament. And all of that money is flowing to Annas. Now we can understand then, can't we, why Annas and his crew are so upset because just a few days before, what happened in those very temple courts? Jesus came in. And he overturned the tables. And he chased the animals out. And he said, you've made my father's house, this temple of worship, into a den of thieves. Jesus draws a line in the sand. And he says, I'm truth, Annas. And you are a lie. And Annas doesn't like that. He's powerful. He's rich. And he doesn't like to be challenged. And so it's time to get rid of Jesus. Now, Annas is the shadow high priest. He's not really the high priest. He's in control, though. Currently, his son-in-law is the high priest. And in suing years, there will be six more high priests, all related to Annas in some way, through marriage or blood. He's a manipulator, a controller. Annas doesn't have time for a Messiah of truth, a Messiah who serves and is humble and is gentle like Jesus. Annas is interested in power and in might and in authority. The false religion of Annas is based on personal control, but the truth of Jesus is based on submission and lordship. And brothers and sisters, we too must guard against shaping our faith according to what we want 
what feels right to us, what allows us to remain in control. You see, real faith in the truth of Jesus calls us to make him Lord. That is master, ruler, leader, decider, shot caller, fill in the blank. Jesus must be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. It's his way, not our way. Now, in verses 19 through 24, Jesus, uh, we're allowed by, by John to kind of listen in on Jesus' encounter with Annas. And so let's read that next section together, verses 19 through 24. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Hmm. You know, there were so many intricate rules and laws in the Jewish system, and that included in their court system. And they were supposed to follow those rules. They were from God. But in the case of Jesus, almost every one of them was ignored. For instance, the law said that the burden of proof in a trial was on the court. But here, they want Jesus to prove he's innocent. According to Jewish law, in fact, the accused is really not even allowed to testify. And yet, he wants Jesus to testify. The accused is to be proved guilty only by the evidence. And yet, they have no evidence. In addition, the trial's not to be held at night. There's never to be a striking of the prisoner. That's not allowed. No display of emotion was be to be shown by the judge or the people in the court. And a two-day waiting period was to be observed before any trial. None of those laws were followed that night. Not a single one of them. And Jesus' responses show us that he is very aware that the law is being disregarded. As he, in essence, asks, where are your witnesses? And why do you strike me? The truth of God's word in dramatic contrast to the manipulations of men. Friends, here's an application for us. Truth is on trial every day in our lives. We will read it, but will we know it? Will we obey it? Or will we choose to disregard it or manipulate it for our own convenience and preference? Now, we may not have the evil motives of the high priest Annas or his accomplices, but friends, when we redefine the good news of Jesus to fit our personal perceptions or our agenda, then we are no less guilty of putting truth 
on trial. Negative ways to handle God's truth. Betrayal, trial, and then finally, denial. As we turn our attention to Peter, we see the glory of the truth of Jesus vividly contrasted with the deep, dark sinfulness of mankind. Let's read these two sections together, verses 15 through 18 and 25 through 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. One of the more well-known stories in Scripture, the triple denial of Peter. Peter was ready to lie and to deny to the high priest, to the guards. But it was a simple servant girl that he was unprepared for when she asked, you're one of them, aren't you? You're a follower of Jesus. And he says, I am not. And then later, warming himself by the fire, asked again and again. All three times, Peter denies knowing the Lord. Now, friends, that night, Peter was weak, but Jesus was strong. Peter was afraid, but Jesus was confident and powerful. Peter was crushed, but Jesus remains composed and in control. Jesus is truth, while Peter was living a lie. And you know, in so many ways, friends, we are like Peter, are we not? We can be proud and strong and confident that we can do whatever we want to do. We can strive to live a holy life, to rise above our addictions or our weaknesses or our hardships. We can work hard to be faithful to the Lord and his church. We can try to keep our family together. We can work hard to provide for ourselves. We can do it all on our own. And friends, that is the big lie of the culture in which we live in. The lie of the self-made man. And when we live that lie, we deny the truth. 
And the truth is, brothers and sisters, we cannot make it on our own. Simply focusing more or working harder or thinking more positive thoughts or carefully following a set of rules won't do it. We can't make it. In Oprah Winfrey's Lifetime Achievement Award acceptance, acceptance speech at the 2018 Golden Globes, she made this statement. What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. Speaking your truth. Your truth. Those two words are so entrenched in our world today that we hardly recognize them for the incoherent nightmare that they really are. This, this philosophy of your truth, it destroys families. It destroys governments. It destroys nations. It destroys churches. Your truth is a philosophy that can destroy entire societies because invariably one person's truth or one nation's truth will come into conflict with another person's truth or another nation's truth. And devoid of reason, what happens? War. On a personal level or on an international level like we're seeing today. And there really is never a victor because there is no your truth. We don't get to make up the truth. And you know what? Your truth also puts an incredible burden on an individual. If we are all self-made projects whose destinies are wholly ours to discover and implement, then life becomes a rat race of performance and achievement and competition. And living your truth becomes both exhausting and senseless. And therefore we have depression and anxiety at all time highs in our world today. The inevitable result as we find ourselves constantly living in betrayal and trials of the truth and denials of the truth. There is only one truth. It is God's truth. And when we live in God's truth, we find great freedom. And that freedom brings us peace and hope and confidence that nothing in this life can provide, ever. Friends, may we not fall into the trap of your truth or my truth. And instead, may we base our thoughts and our hopes and our feelings and our goals and our confidence in the truth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for...